0: Hello, and thank you for joining Haaretz Weekly. With you in studio, Amir Tibor. US President Joe Biden is in Asia this week, focusing on countering China and strengthening the international coalition to isolate Russia. He also has some political trouble at home ahead of the upcoming midterm elections. And yet, in the midst of all these different crises, internal and international, the president is planning a visit to Israel, perhaps as early as next month, and also preparing to end his long feud with Mohammed Ben Salman, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. We thought the U.S. had already given up on the Middle East, but Biden seems to have a different view of things. We'll try to understand what he's looking for in this upcoming visit to the region with one of Washington's top experts on U.S. foreign policy. Our guest today is Aaron David Miller, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and formerly a Middle East negotiator and policy advisor in several U.S. administrations, Republican and Democratic, and I can also say a friend of Haaretz. Hello, Aaron. Amir,
1: hello. I am a friend of Haaretz, and uh, I'm also a friend and colleague of yours.
0: Well, that's a great compliment, and thank you so much for joining us for the discussion today. We're going to talk about President Joe Biden and the Middle East. We are expecting, at least according to recent reports, a visit by the president to Israel, perhaps uh, coming up in a few weeks. There has been discussion about maybe a meeting between him and the Saudi leadership after a tense relationship in the first a year of his presidency but before we come to our part of the world aaron i do want to ask you a bit about what president biden is doing as we are recording this podcast which is his visit to asia and the tough line that he's expressing over there with regards to china were you surprised to hear biden say so clearly that the u.s would use military force to help taiwan if the moment came
1: i was actually and uh, the president has made this assertion before although not as as uh, clear a manner as he did today, actually. I think it reflects, first of all, his Ukraine moment. I think he's caught up in this and realizes that the pivot to Asia really is something that we probably ought to retire. Uh, there, there's no pivot here. The United States confronts two very uh, large power, powers, Russia and China, which are allied with one another, eager to oppose its influence and its power. And I think in in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the president is toughening his rhetoric uh, with respect to China. Catherine Tai, the trade coordinator, actually conceded something that everyone, I I think, already knows, uh, that the president's trip, even though there is no China piece to it, is an effort to counter the influence and rise of China. And I think that that was the overall sort of theme that uh, pervades the president's meetings both in seoul and in japan and everything it seems that he's he's done reaffirming and strengthening relations with two treaty allies where the united states uh, has based thousands of its forces uh, south korea and japan the announcement of the uh, indo-pacific economic framework which is not a traditional trade agreement Which I think is one of its downsides. Uh, There isn't really an issue of what the economists call market access, but it is designed to engage. And now it now has 13, I suppose, uh, parties that have signed up to the party, an effort to create new rules that would contain and restrict China's rising economic influence in the region. And the president, as you know, met with leaders. This is the first meeting, I think. In person of at a leader level of the four members of the uh, of the so-called quad. and there was some talk that the quad would become the quint, maybe with the South Koreans joining Japan, Australia, the United States, and India in this new sort of alignment. So yeah, China was much on the president's mind, and the comments on Taiwan are, Concerning, because I wonder if they're if they're clearly thought through. I think the president made made these comments in part because I think he believes that in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and the response of the international community, the strengthening of NATO, the recent accession or soon-to-be accession of Finland and Sweden. Uh, to the alliance, uh, the impact and remarkable breadth of the sanctions that have been posed on Russia, and the performance of the Russian military. That the Chinese President Xi, if in fact he was envisioning some sort of effort to reunite China and Taiwan by military force, is now having second, third, and fourth thoughts about the wisdom and efficacy of that sort of approach, given what he's seen, So I think the president to a large degree feels emboldened. It's not necessarily a good RX or a prescription to make policy in the moment. We'll see though, whether or not it's a a moment or it turns into stripping away um, the strategic ambiguity that has existed in the way the United States deals with China over Taiwan. You'll note that Taiwan is not a member of the new Indo-Pacific economic framework. Now, whether that'll change or whether they simply did not offer membership out of concern of angering the Chinese is unclear. But we'll see whether the comment, Amir, is a headline or whether it's a trend line.
0: And that's a great way to put it. And either way, it's another sign of how the war in Ukraine is changing so many of these uh, unwritten rules of the international system and causing different countries, uh, whether it was uh, countries in Europe, like Germany, uh, that had to take a different line on uh, arms uh, supplies, or uh, what we saw with the Scandinavians in NATO, and then now the US, with the ambiguity on, on uh, China and Taiwan, really changing these decades-old policies.
1: It is true, although I would inject a cautionary note here. Nobody could divine the future. Uh, I think it would it would take Pythia, the former Oracle of Delphi, reading a lot of co- coffee grinds and goat entrails to try to figure out exactly. But I would only caution that you're most likely you're going to be left with a bitter, humiliated, and angry Russia, uh, a China that will continue its rise, even though I doubt. Even the China experts would argue that uh, President Xi's intention or even capacity has been to sort of, quote unquote, take over the world. I think the Chinese want to dominate the international system rather than fundamentally alter it. And you're going to be left with a world unlike the Cold War 1.0 that is not going to be easily persuaded to choose one side or the other. I don't know, I lost count of how many nations actually signed onto the full uh, sanctions package, but it's probably no more than 40. And somebody pointed out to me the other day that of the 10 most populated countries in the world, only one, the United States, has fundamentally signed up for this sort of sanctions package. You have a a lot of, what what you would call it, hedging, Mm -hmm. fence straddling on the part of some very interesting countries. The Indians, for example, because of their desire to, to counter the Chinese and their military relationship with Russia, don't want to choose. then you you know add to that list Indonesia, which will host the G20 come November and and probably will extend if it hasn't already an invitation to Mr. Putin despite the uh, America's objections, the Mexicans, Brazil with bolsonaro, and in uh, in uh, your and my favorite region of the world, you have countries that have interests and worry greatly about an America with, it, with its own internal political problems and the prospects of a political defeat in November for this president and the possibility that uh, he will become a one-termer and you'll end up with uh, either uh, the real Donald Trump as president or uh, a mini version of a Republican who is not committed, as President Biden is, to asserting U.S. leadership in the world. The Saudis, for
0: sure. They probably won't be too sad about that prospect. That's for sure. So I want to talk a bit about Saudi. But before we we go very deep, I I want to ask the, the next question, which is, you described all these problems that Biden is facing and the huge focus that his administration is putting right now on China and on Russia, these two big adversaries, rivals, competitors, however you want to call it, and all of the troubles they could cause the United States. But also there is a big focus on what he's doing to deter them and hurt them. And some of it, at least with Russia, economically seems to be working. So why, in the midst of all that, is he, and according to the most recent reporting, planning a trip to Israel now?
1: Well, first of all, April 24th. I think the White House issued a statement to check the date that the administration had accepted a, an invitation from the current Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett to visit Israel and that that visit would occur in uh, coming months. Uh, no There's further.
0: talk about June, which is weeks away. Right,
1: or I saw a report this morning, early, early July, probably before the 4th of July, I would imagine. Well, I think the, the reasons are not that complicated. Number one, you have a president who is about as pro-Israeli as they come, Uh, not necessarily pro-Netanyahu, pro-Israeli, and I think there is a distinction in it. He has uh, his pro-Israeli credentials are, are literally baked into his political DNA Uh, When people ask me, is Joe Biden going to be Obama number two, my response was always no. If you're looking for presidential modeling, and I'm fascinated in that subject, I go back to Bill Clinton. Joe Biden is much closer to Bill Clinton.
0: And a, a president whom you personally worked
1: for. I did, as well as a, a couple of Republican presidents. You know, but Clinton wrote in his memoirs that he loved Rabin as he had loved no other man. That's an extraordinary statement for a president to make. Indeed. Joe Biden, quite correctly, has a history, decades of, of public support and interaction with his Israelis and Israeli prime ministers and being, quote unquote, good on Israel, for Biden, it's not just a matter of political expediency. There is that for sure. No, no American politician uh, rising to the presidency could be anything but supportive of Israel, and that includes presidents like Jimmy Carter. Even though administration policy, uh, the administration denies it, we're not withdrawing from the Middle East. Amir, there's no question about that. A-
0: You're saying there's no question about it, but I have to interfere and say that. Here in the region, there are questions. There are,
1: there are, in large part, I would argue, because the priority that the United States has demonstrated in this region has conditioned Arabs and Israelis to basically expect a amazing, intense level of involvement by the United States. It's as if most Israelis, many Israelis, ones who focus on these issue and, and 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 Arabs and Palestinians get up every morning thinking that the first thing Joe Biden thinks about, or any American president, is the problems in this region. And there mm-hmm. have been several factors over the course of the last 20 years, which has fundamentally altered that notion. One is our unhappy experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan. A second is, is rising China and this putative pivot, which I think now is actually being re- realized by Biden. Our... Growing in our growing independence from um, Arab Arab hydrocarbons, the world is still dependent, but but we're not. And one other one other fundamental question in the wake of 9/11 and the wake of the Arab Spring, I think the American mindset now is that most of the problems in this region political dysfunction, corruption, nepotism, lack of gender equality, abuse of human rights, no accountability. Are problems beyond America's capacity to resolve, mm-hmm. and I had mm-hmm. Brett McGurk on the program I run at Carnegie Carnegie Connects. He made a very compelling case.
0: The former uh, ISIS and Iraq policy leader, right, who worked under Obama and Trump, and now with Biden, and currently
1: the, the sort of Middle East czar in the in the Biden administration at the National Security Council. He he made a very compelling case that we're not the U.S. is not deprioritizing the re- region, but if you compare it. The first year of this administration with the first year of so many others, including the Trump administration. I mean, the previous president took his first foreign trip to Saudi Arabia. That's why it's an
0: unforgettable trip, right? With the sword dance and the the orb and all of those great images. And to
1: Israel, which was the second stop. So I think the, the notion, and I think I'm overstating this, but I will state it, that the Middle East in the frame I think, of many American analysts and, and uh, policy advisors, is a place where American ideas in recent years have gone to die. It's not a land of opportunity. It's a place where America is stuck because it has allies and it has adversaries and it has, and it has interests. It cannot extricate itself from the region on one hand. But I really do believe, Amir, that there's a mindset here that it also cannot transform the region. So if you can't extricate and you can't transform, what do you do? And that's what the Biden administration, that middle ground, an effort to navigate that middle ground between transformation and extrication, I think that's where the Biden administration is. One final point, you know, I barely recognize these days, so many things about my own country. With all of its imperfections and transgressions in the past, the flaws in in its federal system and some some of the tragic mistakes it's made abroad, it was a country that functioned according to certain principles, certain norms, where institutions were respected. There have been exceptions, but most American presidents and administrations colored between the lines. Things have fundamentally changed now. And the degree of what the political scientists call pernicious polarization in our country has fundamentally skewed so many things in the direction of democratic backsliding. We're we're two separate countries in many, many respects.
0: A question about that, actually. You know, we have many listeners in the U.S. It's clear why they should care about these changes in the country you're describing. We also have a lot of listeners in Israel and also in the Middle East, in different countries. What does this mean for them?
1: Look, when it comes to foreign policy, I think it's unmistakably clear what it means for them. Uh, One could only imagine, but had Mr. Biden's predecessor been in office, now he claims Putin never would have invaded Ukraine had he been in, in office, but I think that's clearly wrong. Had he been in office when Mr. Putin launched an an invasion. What do you think the response of the Trump administration would have been? Do you think we would have seen, uh, even in the wake of that chaotic and disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, when many people thought that America had lost its capacity to lead? And you know what they say, a leader without followers is just somebody out for a walk.
0: Hmm.
1: Well, Joe Biden demonstrated a degree of leadership and competency which is clearly the best example of alliance management, I think, on an issue, in fact, more critical since uh, Bush 41 and my former boss, Secretary of State Baker, uh, managed Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait, both militarily, diplomatically, and economically. Had Donald Trump been president during this period, it's hard to imagine that the U.S. would have stepped up, would have led and I think you would have seen divisions, real divisions here at home. Mr. Putin created a rare moment of bipartisanship, which no American politician has been able to do. Now it's probably fleeting. but I noticed, you know, Mitch McConnell gave a long interview in which he sought to dispel the impression that the Republican Party has become a party of America firsters. Now clearly, there are large numbers of Republicans who feel that way. But look how easily the billions of dollars of military and economic and financial assistance sailed through the U.S. Congress, that would not have happened under a Trump presidency. Rallying the Europeans would not have happened. NATO, I can imagine a a Trump administration opposing Finland and Sweden's decision to join NATO.
0: But there on a counterpoint, something else that perhaps wouldn't have happened under a Trump presidency is the leaders of the Gulf countries, who are supposed to be some of America's closest allies, refusing to take a phone call from the president. That's true. At Mm -hmm. the height of such an international crisis. We heard that there were reports that both in the UAE and in Saudi Arabia, two countries that, again, receive large amounts of support from the U.S. and really rely on the U.S. for security this is what happened. That's also something that we need to talk about when we look at the big picture of Biden's foreign policy. Yes,
1: we we can, and deprioritizing. Frankly, I am an advocate for many reasons, in large part because I think that that we have seen the enemy, and the enemy is us. Uh, I think that the future of this republic and the challenges we face, however serious they are abroad, do not even come close to what we face here or what we could face in coming years. And the key to American leadership is domestic resiliency and a cohesion of Democrats and Republicans to rally in defense of something that seems so elemental to me, which is the national interest. Just keep in mind, Amir, that one of the reasons the Saudis Have become so mistrustful is in September 2019, not under this administration, but its predecessor, when I guess they were Iranian drones or cruise missiles slammed into two oil-producing terminals in Saudi Arabia. The Saudis were aghast that the Trump administration refused to use military force in response. And the Emiratis have now charged the Biden administration as a consequence of Houthi missile attacks earlier this year. They worry as well. So I I concede that point. I, I really do. But I also believe that we have to cast the net as broadly as possible. And while the Middle East is a critically important area for the United States, it is not the number one priority or concern that it has been in recent decades. And the region, as you point out, the region is also adjusting to this. The Abraham Accords, the budding relationships between Israel and the Emiratis and the Saudis, the -the under-the-table relationships that Israel has with those two countries, the part of the iceberg, most of which is below the waterline, which we do not see, the intelligence and security cooperation, and there's more. When an Israeli prime minister sits down with Mohammed bin Salman at some point in the future, it will not be the first time that that has occurred. So the Middle East is adjusting. Now, the real question, again, and I'll critique my own analysis, have we course corrected too far? And that's a legitimate question. Have we not paid sufficient attention to this region? And what are the costs that are imposed on us for not doing so? And I think that one of the things you're going to see in coming days, weeks, and months is an effort on the part of the administration to, whether it's detente, rapprochement, let's kiss and make up with Mohammed bin Salman. And by the way, that is not, you know, positive blessing and accomplishment without serious concerns, at least in, in my
0: view. I'm sure it will be difficult for Biden because he talked about the Saudis as a pariah state and talked about the bin Salman as someone who carries the responsibility for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, and so now to suddenly turn around and embrace him will be, I think, a difficult act for the president. And, and yet, does he have a choice?
1: I think it's coming. I think um, my former colleague and friend, Bill Burns, was in Jeddah, uh, at least that's what the Wall Street Journal reported, a month or so ago. MBS's brother, Khalid, was in Washington last week. So I think it's coming. Does he have a choice? Well, presidents always have choices. The real question, I think, on on the reconciliation, or whatever you want to call it, with a ruthless and very reckless Saudi leader, is exactly what is the United States going to achieve and extract from this? During the Trump administration, it seems to me there was no reciprocity. The former administration created a sugar high for, for Saudi Arabia, imposed no restrictions, no constraints, disappointed the Saudis, as I mentioned in September 2019 by not responding to the attacks on our oil installations, but but gave them a margin. To maneuver. And by the, the maneuvering was disastrous, whether it was the Saudi war in Yemen, whether it was the hostage video that they created for Saad Hariri when he was in Riyadh, whether it was the repression and intensification of authoritarian policies or the murder and dismemberment of Jamal Khashoggi. And again, I Amir, I'll concede you, I'm no objective observer on this matter. Mm-hmm. You know, Jamal was a friend of mine, he was a friend of many. So I guess the real, the real question is, what will the United States get in return? Now, there are three or four things on the table here. One is oil production. And the Saudis just recently, again, has, have supported the OPEC plus agreement with Russia. It's to their advantage. They see, they see America as a clear competitor in the oil market. They are reaping incredible amounts of money as a consequence of these high oil prices. And there's no incentive right now to forsake that OPEC plus agreement with with the Russians and others with the other non-OPEC members for their own self-interest. Number two, I guess uh, they're on their way out of Yemen. And I suspect consolidating Saudi withdrawal and some, some efforts by the Emiratis and the Saudis to continue to support a political solution. That's another gain, I guess you could argue. And number three is to borrow a, a page from Sadat's book. Where does the road to Washington lie? It lies through Jerusalem.
0: Indeed. Do you see a scenario that during this Biden visit in the region and a part of this attempt to get closer to the Saudis, And as you said, the road to Washington runs through Jerusalem. Perhaps we see Mohammed bin Salman and Biden and whoever is the Israeli prime minister when that happens. Um, I think the likeliest it's still Prime Minister Bennett, but who knows really, together in Jerusalem?
1: Not in Jerusalem. I'm putting together the fact that there have been reports for the last several months that the administration was considering some meeting with Salman. Added to that, the regional meeting. Added to that, the uh, desire on the part of the administration to somehow, somehow find a way to justify and explain how a president could make such a 180 degree turn from turning an individual from a pariah into a photo op with people shaking hands and warmly embracing. So I could imagine it Amir, I could imagine it. But since Mohammed bin Salman believes Biden is at fault, that he is the one who has undermined his honor and prestige, it would seem to me as, I think it's illogical, frankly, it seemed to me that Biden will have to make the first move before they get some sort of significant concession out of Mohammed bin Salman. I mean, the the Saudi watchers argue that not until the current king passes from the scene will MBS be willing and or able to take that kind of step. But from people who have seen him uh, and talked to him, uh, he wants to do more with Israel. There's no question about it.
0: Well, we'll have to wait and see. Aaron David Miller, this has been a fascinating conversation. We started with China, ended with Saudi Arabia and went through many stops on the way. Thank you so much for joining us and for all these great observations. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll get to have you again on the podcast and writing for us at Haaretz. Really always great to, to get your views on these things.
1: Amir, thank you.
0: And that's it for today's episode. Thank you very much to our producer, Aaron Ehrlich, and to you listeners. We'll be back again with an episode of Haaretz Weekend. Until our next meeting, Shalom from Tel Aviv.